The LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Anne Allett of the Allett Immigration Law Firm. On Immigration Enforcement, I-9 Compliance. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis Legal Podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. Anne Allett is the primary shareholder in the Allett Immigration Law Firm, a firm specializing in immigration and nationality matters for more than 30 years. Ms. Allen has written a handbook for employers concerning employer sanctions, which she's kept updated since 1987. And she has spoken at American Immigration Lawyers Association conventions concerning worksite enforcement against employers. Ms. Allen has been consistently recognized as a super lawyer in immigration law. She received her J.D. from the Colorado School of Law in 1965. After law school, she was a Colorado assistant district attorney for seven years. She's the main author of the Immigration Enforcement I-9 Compliance Handbook, available from LexisNexis. Ms. Allett, thanks very much for being part of this LexisNexis Legal Podcast. Thank you very much, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here today. Before we dive into the gist of our conversation here today concerning I-9 Compliance, tell me what attracted you to immigration law and how you got into it. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's a quite interesting scenario. Many years ago, I was at home with three small children and being the part-time prosecutor for Greenwood Village, a night court. And one day, a very dear Catholic priest friend called me and said, Oh, Anne, my favorite Chinese chef is in jail. And uh, he, he was a portly priest. He did like to eat a lot. And uh, he said, I, I need him out of jail. He's on an immigration hold. And I said, I don't even know what an immigration hold is. I've been in criminal law enforcement for quite some time, but I haven't heard of that one. And he said, well, he's here, and his wife is here, and she had a baby here, and he jumped ship to come join her, and they caught him. And this is in 1974. So wouldn't you know, that night in traffic court, the investigator who arrested him happened to be in court as a witness on a traffic case. And I said, oh, my gosh, how do I get this guy out of jail? And he said, oh, it's easy. You just have to do these two or three things, and then you can take him to Canada and get him a green card. And certainly he gave me very good advice that uh, I followed, and six weeks later my fellow who jumped ship had a green card out of the U.S. consulate in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And uh, that started. All of a sudden one Chinese chef, told another Chinese chef, and before you know it, I was getting dims on at our door Sunday morning in our home. And by 1978, I had six employees in the basement of my house and three kids that were getting to be teenagers. And when I went to the dentist and couldn't open my mouth, he said, are you under a lot of stress? And I said, um, yeah, it could be. <laughs> and so finally, uh, in uh, about 1978, I opened my office. And here we are 30 years later, and you've been practicing immigration law all that time, and we want to talk today about I-9 compliance. I guess, first of all, can you describe what I-9 is? Yes, the I-9 is a form that the federal government invented in 1986. Our dear senator from Wyoming, Senator Simpson, Alan Simpson, 
who's still very active today, came up with the idea that the burden to keep undocumented workers out of the United States should fall on the back of employers. Because after all, they were coming here to get jobs, and if they couldn't get jobs, then they wouldn't come. And he said, each employer must fill out the Form I-9 to attest under felony perjury that, first of all, the employee is authorized to work in the United States, and, and as is done in Section 1, and in Section 2, the employer has reviewed the employee's documents and believes in good faith that they are authorized to work in the United States. And there was the birth of the Form I-9 in 1986 when Senator Simpson passed the Employer Sanctions Act. And has the process worked? The process has never worked. It's an unfortunate thing. The process began in good faith, and I, I, I guess because I knew Senator Simpson very well, uh, he was the, uh, one of the best friends of my father-in-law, who happened to be a U.S. senator as well, uh, Senator Gordon Allett from Colorado. And I, I was very interested in the law from the beginning and followed it very closely. And just after it was passed, um, as a member of the uh, Colorado Restaurant Association, I was the Colorado Restaurant Association allows one liquor license lawyer and one immigration lawyer, even back then, to help them resolve those kind of issues. I traveled around the state of Colorado with this new form, introducing it to restaurants all over the state of Colorado. And employers really wanted to act in good faith at the very beginning to do this form. And there is no form in America for which you were fined for not completing it correctly. Hmm. This is a different kind. If we, Germans do that. But we are not a detail-oriented nation like that. We want to get things generally right, but not specifically right. Our mindset in the law is not that detailed. But, and the form requires that you do it exactly right or you get fined. And the employers right from the beginning had a very hard time with that. And sure enough, at first it worked. And I came out with a little booklet that I just made on my own that showed people how to fill it out correctly. And uh, it was very popular, and, and uh, I continued going around the state talking to employers and holding seminars to help them fill out this form right. And they were doing it in very good faith. And then we got into the late 80s, and by 1989, it was amazing. We weren't having any fallout from undocumented workers not getting jobs. And I'd ask, Florida, are you having any trouble hiring workers? No, no. He said, you know, they're, they, they all have these green cards. They all, they all are legal, and I, I'm looking there at that document. Well, document fraud had just begun. And you could buy on the street for, in a bar, you could buy a document that would show that you're a lawful permanent resident of the United States, and you'd pay a couple hundred dollars for the document if you got the job, and if you didn't get a job, they'd give you half your money back. But they knew where the fake documents would work, and they would send, so it was sort of like, if you got one, you were going to get several more green cards because the counterfeit people knew that that's what would work. And here we are, more than 25 years later, and the government still has not figured out how to stop document fraud. That E-Verify worked at first, but it doesn't work now because U.S. citizens 
are willing to say, sell their name, date of birth, and social security number. And, and then the document fraud people are able to make documents that even can get through E-Verify. So we still have the desire to work is greater than the government's desire to put people out of work by having the employer fill out these forms in good faith. I think the employers are always working in good faith in this matter, but they just can't stay up and the government can't stay up with, with the amount of fraud that's out there. In the meantime, I think it's also important to note that the government has never said, how do you detect a fake document? Only last year, the U.S. government put out a guide to selected U.S. travel and identity documents prepared by the Forensic Document Laboratory of the United States Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And this document shows you what a good employment authorization document looks like and the other immigration documents that an employer has to look at. But it doesn't tell them what the fake documents are going to look like, what to look for that, you know, is it because the print isn't quite straight? Is it because the photo is a slightly different size? What are the things that may be an indicia of a fake document? They're extremely subtle. Of course, I've seen thousands of green cards. I've seen good, bad, and ugly. I can't tell a good green card from a bad green card. And I have seen not as many as USCIS people, but I've seen hundreds, if not thousands and thousands, of different types of government documents. It's very, very difficult to tell the fake ones from the real ones. This is such a hot topic right now with various enforcement actions and uh, a big-name, big-money settlement recently. Yes, recently there was the Abercrombie Fitch case where they paid over a million dollars for making their own electronic program. Oh, too bad they forgot to do one thing. They forgot to have the person who was filling out the form look at the person presenting the documents and the documents to ascertain that they went together. And that's the most fundamental thing there is. I have yet to see an electronic program that doesn't have a major fault. I want to ask you more about those programs in a moment or so, but let me ask you, who, who's vulnerable here? Who's the most vulnerable? The employers are very vulnerable. The employers have a, a huge, expensive burden to fulfill in filling out that form. And they, to this day, do not have precise guidance how to do it. Nowhere in their instructions does it tell how do you change a Form I-9 when a woman gets married. That's a simple question that happens routinely. If somebody changes their name and they're issuing their paycheck on another name, what do you do? Even simple little questions like that after 25 years have not been answered by the government. The government has given us very little guidance. They did put out this book and they did put out a handbook in the last couple of years but it just doesn't begin to answer all the questions. Are there some specific things that employers can do to protect themselves? Yes. Employers do not hire experts to help them work with their system to do it right. Just yesterday, I reviewed a group of Form I-9s. An employer had eight employees, and he was going to a, a job site that required that his I-9s be in perfect shape. Every form I-9 was wrong. 
Section 1 was wrong because every employee had signed the form in the wrong slot. And the form itself on, the, on Section 1, it, it is very confusing. There's a big space underneath the paragraph that says where you're supposed to sign, and then there's a little line that says where you're supposed to sign your name. And it's a narrow little place to sign your name. And they had all dated it in the right place but signed it in the wrong place. And that's a simple error, but it is a technical error that had to be fixed. And so he had to bother all eight employees to re-sign the form. And that's just the beginning of the issues that you get into. They have to check the right box. They have to know that they are a U.S. citizen, a lawful permanent resident, a national or a temporary non-immigrant. Well, people don't know that. They don't have the big picture of immigration law. They have to know a person filling out the Form I-9 has to be aware of the general laws of immigration in the United States to know how to identify the different classifications of people that are here. You've come up with an interesting list of questions that employers should ask of anyone who offers an electronic verification system. What are some of the most important things they can ask? Well, the first and most important thing, as Abercrombie Fitch found out for $1.4 million, is you can never give up the identification of the person and the documents. And with the electronic form, it's very easy for that to happen because the person who's filling out the form on the electronic, so the employee comes in and signs electronically the form. And the person who's monitoring that person signing the form should also be the person who is looking at the documents and verifying that they saw the person and the documents. But what happens in big America is, of course, employees work at different job sites. And there's one HR person in uh, another city who's a guru of the Form I-9 and understands the electronic program and reviews it all to make sure it's done right and signs it. And that person is not the same person who saw the documents. And it's interesting that the U.S. Census group had the same problem. The U.S. Census, to, to hire the census employees that were just hired, this, they were hired basically in 09 to do the work in 010, the people who were out in the field filled out the Form I-9, which you generally can't do. You don't want to fill out the Form I-9 until you've made the decision to hire. But they were interviewing people all over the United States, and they ha that was the only one-on-one -on -one contact. So the U.S. Census Department decided they would complete the Form I-9 at the time of interview, which they did, so that they could verify the documents in the person. And then they put the Form I-9 and a copy of the documents in a sealed envelope, which could not be used until the decision uh, to hire had been made. And at that time, they opened the documents to make sure it was all correctly done. That is a very interesting and creative system, and I would very much like to see the government make that available to all of us, which would help us enormously in, in completing the Form I-9 either electronically or at different location sites. Electronically, it's extremely difficult with a big company to have the electronics available at the job site. The electronics in a restaurant, for an example, which is not a, a computer-oriented business, just may not be available at all the, 
all the restaurants side. And so what do you do? How do you complete the form? If, if it's not there, you either have to have the employees go to where the electronics are or take the electronics to the employment site. So that's a huge problem with the electronics. And that identification section is the most difficult part of the electronic setup. What advice would you give practitioners who are involved with these issues? Don't give advice until you know the subject. It's loaded. It takes a long time to learn this subject. And just generally telling a client they have to do it isn't enough. They need to have a checkup, a regular checkup, to make sure that they have not fallen off track with an expert or they are going to be in harm's way. In addition, a general lawyer can become an expert. He should buy our book and read it carefully. And may, I think the LexisNexis book does work for lawyers and employers. Read the book carefully, and you'll figure out how to fill out the form correctly, and you'll begin to become aware of some of the pitfalls that employers can fall in when they are trying to complete and abide by the employer sanctions law. Besides filling out the form, the other danger for all employers is independent contractors. And uh, even I didn't realize that I was hiring independent contractors without making a contract with them to comply with the employer sanction laws in the United States. I hire translators to translate a document here and a document there. And I now ask all of those translators to say that they are aware of the employer sanction law of the United States and they are in compliance with the law. But I only recently picked up on my own business the need to be very careful with independent contractors. The book is Immigration Enforcement I-9 Compliance Handbook? Yes, sir. Available from LexisNexis? It is. And I thank you for giving up some of your time to talk about I-9 compliance with us, and it's a hot topic, will continue to be a hot topic, and we we'll look forward to having you back to talk about it more again in a future podcast. Thank you very much. I'll look forward to that opportunity. Ann Allett of the Allett Immigration Law Firm. Thank you for listening to this LexisNexis legal podcast. Visit the LexisNexis communities at www.lexisnexis.com community. The LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast, copyright 2010 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis. I'm Steve Bursler. Thank you for listening.